welcome to another episode of the Shadow Sex Cybersecurity Podcast. I am Nima Mihanyar, and joining me as always is my partner in crime, a man that takes his privacy so seriously that when he completed a recent large purchase and the cashier actually told him that they only had e-receipts, he proceeded to spend the next 10 minutes painstakingly spelling out letter by letter his 24-hour constantly rotating tour email address. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Jorge Lamarca. I'm back home, baby. Like you never left. It does feel like I never left, but I missed my house so much, man. I also happened to come back just before the border people got really crazy about Corona, which is good. I am self-isolating for 14 days anyway, but at least I don't have to be stabbed in the face like three times now. Exactly. No one wants to be that. that that's always super nice. And you're being responsible. Like any amount of face stabbing is excessive. Any amount, really. And for anyone who's wondering what Jorge is talking about, he recently to complete a trip back to the UK. Welcome back to Fog, Sherlock Holmes, and Rain. <laughs> <laughs> you say that as if it's a bad thing. I love it. <laughs> I know. I miss it too. But yet, the most jarring thing is I got the test and it felt fine because the person doing it was kind of all right. She was really helpful and nice, especially for a person who has to do it like a bazillion times a day. I would be so on edge. Anyway, so she did it to me. It felt a bit uncomfortable, whatever, but it was fine. But when my girlfriend got it, it looked to me like she got like 25 centimeters of Q-tip in her nose, like literally. Brain matter. Like, like yeah. Like two thirds of a huge Q-tip, you know? Oh my God. Oh my God, dude. You have to edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> I just gave you partial sound bites for life. <laughs> you, you, can, you, you can create like a techno version, like a reggaeton version. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I love it. <laughs> okay. So before we get started, I'm just going to give a quick disclaimer for ourselves that obviously views and opinions that Jorge and I share are our own and do not represent anything from any of our employers, current or previous, or any organizations or groups that we are obviously associated with. So with that obviously out of the way, I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us for another week and another episode. I hope you're all keeping safe and doing well. And we have a great show for you with some really interesting stories. With the first one being related to a story that we actually covered in our bite-sized chunk last week related to ICS systems. So this story comes from Security Week and it's titled Hack Exposes Vulnerability Cash Strapped US Water Plants. So apparently a hacker attempted to poison the water supply of a small Florida city called Oldsmar, which has a population of around 15,000 people. Now, an analyst called Leslie Carhart from Dragos Security, which is a company that actually specializes in ICS systems and their security, actually echoed the industry's feelings on this by saying that in the industry, we were all pretty much expecting this to happen. We have known for a long time that municipal water utilities are extremely underfunded and under-resourced, and that makes them a soft target for cyber attacks. Now, apparently, in this event, employees at this water plant use TeamViewer to allow staff to share screens and troubleshoot IT issues. And the employee on site on the day 
actually noticed that around 8 a.m. his mouse cursor started to move around strangely by itself on his screen. But this actually surprisingly didn't concern him because his boss often connects to his computer to monitor the facility systems. So that obviously should be a red flag by itself. Now in this instant at 8 a.m. nothing really happened. But a few hours later, around 1.30 in the afternoon, the operator noticed his mouse moving again out of his control. But this time, the actual cursor started to click through all of the water treatment's controls. And within seconds, the intruder that had accessed it was attempting to change the water supply's level of sodium hydroxide, which is also known as lye. And they tried to move the settings from being 100 parts per million to a 11,000 parts per million, which is almost a hundred X. That's how it felt when I lived in Barcelona, man. Didn't you? <laughs> Wasn't the water insane? It was a little bit harder than it is in the UK, I have to say, definitely. <laughs> but hopefully it wasn't in this concentration. <laughs> yeah, but here we're talking gravy, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, some hardcore gravy. Because apparently they say that in the low concentrations, this actual corrosive chemical regulates the pH level of water. But at high levels, it severely damages any human tissue it actually touches. So if that's like gravy, I'm going to stay away from that gravy. <laughs> that's a hard spice. I think that's a gravy that I cooked, basically. <laughs> it damages any human tissue. <laughs> I'm going to keep it in mind next time I come over to your place. <laughs> Now, the city actually did say to try to reassure people that if the operator hadn't caught it, the poisoned water would have taken 24 to 36 hours to actually reach the city's population. But at the same time, an automated pH testing safeguard that they had in place would have triggered an alarm and caught the change before anyone was actually harmed, which of course is reassuring to know and obviously highlights the importance of having a layered approach, not just to your security, but to your safeguards as well because if one fails then at least another one down the line will be able to catch it but even with all of these safeguards in place they should have had something to also prevent their systems from being hacked in this manner and having someone be able to change all of the chemical compositions in the water so maybe a better segmentation of their network and their processes and functionalities would also be in order because if someone is able to access one key area, they shouldn't be able to change all the key functions within that system. In this case, this is just one of those in which so much went wrong, it's kind of pointless to comment. Exactly, definitely. I mean, also based on the fact that the employee noticed his mouse was moving and just assumed his boss was connecting and that it was fine. That obviously by itself shows very bad processes in place because if you're going to have something like that, then obviously you should have some type of a formal process in which at least your boss phones you or contacts you in advance to say, I'm going to control your machine now so don't be alarmed if the mouse starts moving and not just assume that if the mouse starts moving hopefully it is my boss actually connecting and looking at the computer screen that obviously is a major red flag in these companies processes and procedures 
Now, this type of event, even though in this particular instance, you could look at it somewhat comically by the fact that he saw the team viewer and just assumed it was okay. But the actual threat that ICS systems actually face is very real and it is actually increasing. And they are being more and more targeted by very sophisticated nation state actors who are obviously using them and prepping their offensive capabilities to be able to take these type of systems out in the event of a major escalation. Now, the cybersecurity industry knows, and it is kind of an open secret, that Russia is basically using the Ukraine, for example, as their test bed and test systems for training all of their offensive teams in ICS capabilities, with at least two known successful attacks against Ukraine's power network, in which we actually discussed one of them in a previous episode that actually affected over 120,000 people. Now, if you actually want to have more information on that actual event, there's a really good great book that you can actually listen to called Sandworm that goes into great detail about this and the FSB unit that was actually linked to this activity. Now, obviously, the US is not innocent in all of this, and they have also begun training their teams in ICS hack and offensive capabilities, with the most famous and notable example being the Project Aurora experiment that they conducted in 2007, in which they used a computer virus to actually rapidly open and close a diesel generator circuit breakers and bring that generator out of phase with the rest of the grid and cause it to actually explode. So obviously, ICS systems are very vulnerable, very exploited, and currently in the crosshairs of some very sophisticated nation states. So it's not a far-fetched assumption to assume that future wars will involve a heavy component of cyber, and it will be these ICS systems that will be the first line of targets that adversaries will take out. So it's very important that we take the security hygiene of ICS systems very seriously seriously and we get some very smart researchers to actually start looking at these and finding them and harden these ICS systems because they obviously provide vital services to the modern society we live in. I think if we ever take an interest in AI, it's going to be a really good entry-level experiment to work out the average time it takes you to say the word Russia in one of our podcasts. I'm I'm sure. That's my contribution to this, yeah? I think uh, IBM is a supercomputer can help with that. Ah, Deep Blue. But that's like 1980s stuff, no? It's going to still help. (laughs) It might. We we might also be able to use multi-vac. Exactly. Okay. Okay, so jumping on to our next story, it comes from Fretpost and is titled Fake Forcepoint Google Chrome Extension Hacks. Now, apparently cyber criminals were found to be compromising a system and after they would compromise the system, they locally installed a malicious Chrome extension on the user's Chrome browser with the intention of being able to actually manipulate the user's traffic and steal browser-related data from the user. And this obviously included things like emails and OAuth tokens. Now, you may obviously be thinking, Wait a minute, doesn't Chrome have an app store to get all of the extensions from? And you would be correct, but Chrome also allows you to manually load your own extensions into your Chrome browser. 
This story is, is really good. The, the researcher who actually wrote the original blog post was with Sans. In this case, thread post was basically just echoing that particular blog. And of course, a lot of the details around intent and context were not in place for the blog post, and I assume that's deliberate. But there's a vague assertion about the goals. It goes on to say it was trying to manipulate data in an internal web application that the victim had access to, right? So this seems to be highly targeted. It's also kind of a specialty attack because it actually came as a result of the attackers being interested exclusively on the HTTP interactions with internal application. In this particular case, the extension was able to monitor inter-extension communication and had a series of active listeners using the Chrome API. So in this case, despite the extension being placed for reasons which are, have not been disclosed, I assume this came in the context of forensic analysis and so on, it does go into some detail as to the capabilities of the extension. So it had the ability to intercept and store intra-plugin communication and also web communication. All of it through leveraging the APIs exposed to Chrome extensions. And the most notable item about this story is that because the stolen information was actually written into temporary storage or sync storage by the malicious extension, the attackers could actually use a third browser under their control locked onto the same account to very simply read off the information that had been stolen, which makes it so that technically they were using Google infrastructure as their own C2 infrastructure, especially leveraging the fact that because this was C2 traffic and also secret stealing and so on, the limitations are on sync storage, which didn't really apply because stealing a bearer token, stealing a password and so on doesn't take that much storage, right? So this is a genius use of the extension architecture. And at the same time, to be completely fair, the machine was already compromised because Chrome since 2018 doesn't really allow local loading of extensions unless the developer mode is enabled. So by default, and this should be the default for all installations, obviously including enterprise ones, you have to have compromised the machine and then forced the policy onto the machine, I suppose. Again, not disclosed. I'm just assuming it was manipulated previously. So then the attacker could load the extension onto Chrome. I'll be honest, what should have been a sensible short research session a few days ago to read into this and other stories that diverged into an insane rabbit hole of Chrome extension research, which is absolutely not relevant to this story, but something that actually came out. That's why we love you, Jorge. <laughs> <laughs> I could actually tell. I could actually tell you unmuted your mic <laughs> and you were dying to say something. That. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I, I did. I did. What, what actually surfaced for me was the great amount of care that has gone into making the extension architecture for Chrome viable. Right. So we've been raving about plugins and, and extensions since the Firefox days, in which Firefox actually made browsers something that normies could use with a high degree of functionality. In this case, I came across a very rich history of policy tweaks, software updates, policy enforcement, all kinds of things and efforts to make that viable. And I'm quite impressed, actually. So I'll put a few links to my research in the show notes so that it's not going to be completely a waste of time. But also something that jumped at me in this particular case was I did read through the program policies for the extensions and the guidance for extension developers. 
And I saw a very, very similar structure and content to that of the Apple App Store guidance, right? So lots and lots of provisions and protections and, and call outs to bad practices in marketing, targeting, and so on, which is kind of, you know, the majority use case. But I would have liked to see more control over the exception use cases. And here I saw the same wording as with Apple's guidance. So things related to fraud, uh, security monitoring, anti-malware, and so on are likely exceptions for collection of information. And since this is a fortified honor system, like the one Apple has, I do see kind of a loophole for malicious, clever people collecting and sharing data for purposes that are under the guidance and the terms and conditions, but they may not be doing their best effort to collect the minimum viable amount of information and so on. So links in the show notes. Something else to mention here is that enterprise management of Chrome is easy compared to management of many other desktop applications, right? So making sure that the continuously updated templates for group policy affecting Chrome are reviewed and that your policy makes sense for your environment is very important. Captain Obvious says. And then also specifically with Chrome and high value users, I'm thinking changes to your registry can be a really good way of keeping an eye on your critical users, your critical infrastructure operators and people who use web applications who are very, very valuable and vulnerable. So of course, Sysmon can help review changes in crucial keys in the registry, which affect the behavior of Chrome. And that can be a low noise, high admiralty way of keeping on top of malware and compromised machines for this particular vector. Of course, restricting the number of machines and the type of operators is kind of key. Now, I think that's actually really good. And any research that you can include in the show notes, I think our listeners would be very grateful for. And so in regards to obviously Google and Apple's app stores converging on their language, I hope that's more in line with obviously them possibly taking the best practices from each one and then obviously unifying that together as opposed to one just being lazy and just taking it from the other. I hope that obviously eventually we will get to a point where both Google and Apple's app stores will converge on a lot of the details because at the end of the day, that hopefully will be best practices that both stores, because of course, both of them suffer and see the same type of issues in both of their environments. And the, the reason I wanted to call out the amount of dedication and talent that went into and has historically and still goes in to preserving policy compliance and technical soundness and security by default with extensions is because Google get, gets lots of flack for being very loose with security or rather allowing or externalizing a lot of the security best practices to developers and so on. And I think a part of this comes from the fact that Google is essentially mass consumer data or at finance business model type thing. So they can't hope to be such a walled garden as say Apple. But at the same time, I do genuinely believe Google has a, a healthy sense of responsibility distribution where they're not over governing their tool set. I agree as well. And I do think that Google gets a lot of flack, mostly from the fact that, of course, they are seen as an advertisement-driven company. So a lot of people obviously associate that with tracking and somewhat suspicious activity. But it is obviously important to know that Google is also recognized within the cybersecurity industry as somewhat of a leader and uh, following best practices and developing a lot of best practices in cybersecurity. So I do think that they also do a lot of great work. And I think you're right that they do have their sense of responsibility quite well evenly distributed. 
And in regards to this actual attack that we were seeing, it also doesn't surprise me that they were obviously going directly for the web applications. Because of course, as we know, almost everything is actually managed through web applications these days, such as CRM, document management systems, access rights systems, even email. So if you can name it, it probably can be managed in a web application. So attackers obviously are very keen to be able to dig down and see what your Google Chrome is showing and has actually stored in it because that's probably where all the key valuable information for them is going to be. But another thing that this issue has also highlighted is obviously the power that the extensions can have. So I have seen a lot of different places, the calls for extensions to actually be run more in sandboxes and with limited access to the file system and website data, which makes a lot of sense to me. So for example, an extension like uBlock Origin, which obviously requires extensive access to your website data to be able to filter and check any sites you're visiting are on any blacklists. In those kind of situations, you can explicitly allow that extension to access the wide range of data but by default i think extensions should obviously come with limited access and if you need them to actually gain more access to be able to do the functionality that you want them to do then you can obviously explicitly grant that so i think that makes a lot of sense ublock origin is, is an example of a fairly good practitioner in terms of their app store present and and the, the chromium project to their credit, are massive in ensuring that security by default is enforced. So there, there's a few examples. I think the one you brought up just now with process isolation had a big push forward in 2017 when they actually made it so that iframes that ensure integration between social networks and so on happen with plugins happen in their own process. So if process space is compromised, then you don't have complete control over the extension. So yeah, what this brought to bear to me was, yeah, I have tendency to digress and behave Wikipedia style, just clicking on links and just reading stuff. But at the same time, the Chromium people and the Google people have been incredibly supportive of preserving this ecosystem of extensions, which isn't viewed positively by a lot of people. Exactly. It's kind of a thankless job that they do and they try to do the best they can. But moving on from that to our next story, which is actually hosted on the Hacker News, and it's titled, Researchers Reveal How Iran Spies on Dissidents, which obviously shouldn't be that much of a surprise, but... Sorry, 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 sorry. I thought it was muted. (laughs) So apparently, the security company Checkpoint detailed two cyber operations conducted by state-sponsored Iranian threat actors that demonstrate their continued focus on compiling detailed dossiers on Iranian citizens that could potentially threaten the government. And these actually include opposition forces, ISIS supporters, and Kurdish natives and Kurdish natives being obviously a a minority in Iran. Now, the operation itself was apparently conducted by two advanced Iranian cyber groups dubbed Domestic Kitten, or APT-C-50, and the INFI group. And Checkpoint revealed new evidence that they found of their ongoing activities that involved the use of an updated malware toolset, as well as tricking users into downloading malicious software under the pretense of being popular apps. 
Now, the attacks themselves were described as being long-running and targeted both people's mobile devices and personal computers. With the most recent campaign that they found related to domestic kitten starting in November of 2020, and they were found to be using malicious apps as the entry vector. And some of these included a mobile security app called Viper, an app called Exotic Flowers, which was actually a repackaged variant of a game available on Google Play. I mean, who can resist that? Exactly. And the next one, even more, Iranian Woman Ninja, which is a wallpaper app that must have gotten a lot of installs, I'm sure. And also a fake app for the Mohsin restaurant, which is a popular restaurant in Tehran. And these were all used to distribute a malware that, unsurprisingly, based on the threat actor's name, is called Furball. Now, with the example of the Mohsin restaurant app, they actually lured victims to install it through different vectors, such as by sending SMS messages to them with a link to download the malware. And they also posted the link on blogs and even shared it in Telegram channels. And they targeted around 1,200 individuals, which were located in Iran, the US, Great Britain, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Turkey, and Uzbekistan. And the researchers said they have identified at least 600 successful infections from these attacks. Now, the Furball malware, once installed, will grant itself wide-ranging permissions to execute the app every time the device is started up and will proceed to collect your browser history, your hardware information, any files on any external SD drives that are inserted at the time, and periodically exfiltrate videos, photos, and phone records every 20 seconds. And it also The app works. of Thundera. <laughs> That was a lost opportunity if I've ever seen one. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Go on. It also monitors clipboard content and gains access to all notifications received by the device and comes with the capability to remotely execute commands that come from the command control server to be able to record audio, video, and phone calls. So it's really bad piece of malware. And that was obviously related to domestic kitten. The other group, Infi, which also goes by the name Prince of Persia, has a malware that's actually called Fudrede, which has also been recently updated and it boasts features such as stealing files and info from your devices, recording sound and taking screenshots. But unlike Domestic Kitten, only a few dozen victims of Infi were found to be targeted in this attack, including from Iraq, Uzbekistan, UK, Russia, Romania, Germany, Canada, Turkey, and the US. And Infi actually got spanked quite hard in June 2016 by Palo Alto, who successfully were able to sinkhole the group's C2 infrastructure at the time. But evidence shows that a short time after that, Iranian telecommunications companies worked to bypass the sinkhole, which obviously shows a potentially high-level support for the group, if you can obviously get the telecommunications companies to support your malicious C2 traffic. 
So one thing that this obviously shows is that nation state sponsored attacks can be obviously exposed, denied, and in some cases have their actual infrastructure taken away. And that would obviously be game over for most commercial based groups. But for these type of groups, they simply learn from it, modify their tactics and go on and wait for the storm to pass by and then start up all over again. It's basically a never ending game of cat and mouse. But what is interesting about this specific case is the sheer amount of resources that the Iranian regime was actually willing to spend on exerting their control over their own people. That was a really good spanking by Palo Alto as well. Exactly. That was the main piece of the story, right? I got it right. Like like the spanking. The spanking was the most important thing. I think it left a red mark. <laughs> so now we're going to go and jump on to our next story. It comes from Bleeping Computer. And in my opinion, if hacking was an art, this would be a Monet of hacking, where a researcher hacks over 35 technology companies in a novel supply chain attack. So apparently, a hacker called Alex Bursan was able to make $130,000 in bug bounties by breaching over 35 major companies' internal systems in what has to be the year's most imaginative hack. Now, when we actually say major companies, we mean major, including the likes of Microsoft, Apple, PayPal, Shopify, Netflix, Yelp, Tesla, and Uber, just to name a few. And the attack comprised of uploading malware to an open source repository, including PyPy, NPM, and Ruby Gems, which then got distributed downstream automatically into the company's internal applications with no action required by the user. So this is pretty much the gold standard of hacking. This is every hacker's wet dream that every company will voluntarily download your malware directly into the core of their network with no action required by them. Yeah, so this is one of those stories that jumps out because of its simplicity. Lots and lots of people trying to reverse engineer using Radare firmware that is highly obfuscated and they had to exfiltrate using, you know, Top Gun slash Mission Impossible techniques. While this guy simply goes, oh, you know what? It could be that if an internal application that uses NPM for their JavaScript or, or PyPy for the Python or whatever, has an internal package that I could just claim the name for in the public registry for that language, it might be that that application just downloads my package. <laughs> And lo and behold, <laughs> that's what happened. So uh, in absolute fairness, this is uh, targeting edge cases that happen when you use certain features of package managers. So they cite the extra index URL flag for pip, which is the default package manager for Python, and then the source flag for Ruby gems. In both cases, you can force an edge case where if there's a public version of the package that you're supposed to fetch internally, if you create a package with a superior version, version that is technically, or through their naming convention, is ahead of the one that is available internally, it will fetch the most recent version. This is very typical for package managers where you will stipulate a specific version or a range of versions of a dependency. So let's say you have a package internally 
and you say, I need celery 4.5.1. That's ideal, right? Because you're fetching a specific version of celery. But you could also say, I want celery above version 4. And then anything above version 4 will get fetched. In this particular case, you create a package with the same name as internal package and you give it a higher version number and the package manager will actually fetch your version instead of the internal version, which of course is a big problem because you can inject any kind of code into here. The way this person did it is they started looking in GitHub and a number of places for package manifests for different languages, including leaked names of internal dependencies. So this is these are dependencies that shouldn't be named or cited in this manifest files available in the internet. But of course, people make mistakes. You commit to branches of your project that has too much information in a specific file. In this case, he was able to fish for names of internal packages that are leaked on the internet and then create his own versions of those packages in this public repository. So NPM and PyPy mostly. And lo and behold, he saw insane demand for those packages. So networks from all over the world pulling his version of the package. Again, something he mentioned as well is that all of the companies involved in this proof of concept hack were either offering consent indirectly through their bug bounty or directly engaged with him and allowing him to do it. So he managed to compromise all of these companies' environments with snippets that would just exfiltrate over a covert channel, in this case, DNS, data about the environments that were compromised. He was really careful as well. He just did something like maybe hostname and time or hostname and whatever. So it was really vanilla metadata. It was just a proof of concept. But he actually proved that he could execute arbitrary code on the networks of over 35 of the world's biggest companies. And because this was an ethical hack, he got into very interesting exchanges with the companies that did actually have a conversation with him about it. Because of course, a company will forfeit and go, I agree, this wasn't RCE vulnerable position that you found, here's your bounty. Some others actually engaged in conversation, including Apple, who fixed their situation in under two weeks. Shout out to Apple. And actually responded in quite a funny way to a cheeky claim by the researcher. So the researcher said, well, now that I have RCE on XYZ environment within your company, I could potentially pivot to places like application XYZ for consumers. And Apple goes, hey, 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 wait a second. That sounds a lot more complicated, requiring a ton more skill. And also that implies we would not be able to detect it. So let's just leave it at a 30K healthy bounty, which adds to the pile of money this person made by exploiting this typos Quatting-esque based TTP, which is fantastic. Really impressed. I'll take that 30K if he doesn't want it. That's fine. But I do actually think that uh, he was actually very responsible, like you shouted out, and he was very good in that part because obviously he created a project using his own real account name and clearly put a disclaimer in place for all the packages that actually stated, this package is meant for security research purposes and does not contain any useful code. So he actually put that directly in the code. And the domain naming he also picked for the domains that he was hosting the zone for for exfiltration as well. It was like somebody hacks PayPal or his name hacks PayPal. <laughs> I absolutely love that. That's what that he actually used as. I mean, imagine the analysts who are obviously looking at the suspicious process and looks at the traffic and sees dns.alexbersman-hacks-paypal.com. <laughs> 
again, to be absolutely clear, this isn't exploiting a vulnerability anywhere. It's more of a vulnerable position induced by a combination of potential ignorance around the build process and the meaning or implications of the choice of versions for this package manager. So the algorithm goes into picking a version in source A versus source B misconfiguration in terms of the sources. You potentially should only have one source when you're building your application. But also, very concerning, uh, JFrog Artifactory, which is an environment commonly used to host packages, actually has no real way of mitigating this condition. Uh, and there's uh, actually in, in the article from, in his own blogs, so Alex Burson's blog, he puts in quite a funny meme. I recommend you, you check that out. In terms of facts and some prevention mechanisms. So again, 35 companies, affected overall. That's amazing. Most of the attack surface was JavaScript, so NPM packages. Apple also fixed their box in a very fast amount of time and awarded the bounty. That's really good to hear. And then in terms of prevention, there's a paper by Microsoft called Three Ways to Mitigate Risk When Using Private Package Feeds. And this paper actually talks about the hybrid environment Alex Persson talks about in his blog. It recommends a few things that seem quite obvious, but in combination, I don't believe are done across the board in all companies where they should. So the first is enforcing single source for package managers that support it. So all open ones, I suppose. You have your own registry, which keeps version control keeps the latest build versions of those packages. It has the fingerprints for them and you only pull from that version. So if you're supposed to use a public dependency, pull it first, check it for integrity and make it available to your build environment. Uh, another shout out, which is quite trivial and I mentioned earlier is pin the exact version of dependency you wish to build with. If a public package you're using or your team is using is quite lenient in terms of version control, it is not the job of the developers of the open source product to harden your implementation of it. And that is also in the licensing for all of these tools or most open on permissive licenses, right? So pin down the version, modify the manifest files, and make the versions specific. For the tools that support it, for the package managers that support it, enforce namespaces, right? So let's say you wish to keep the version loose. You can enforce a namespace from which the resolution will be where you want it to be, right? So in this case, for example, your internal registry, you can keep several versions. You can have the teams uploaded and tested in a asynchronous way. So whenever they want, and you're picking a compatible version, but at least the namespace that you're using to resolve is a namespace under your control. Again, as I said, enforcing integrity verification is natively supported by most open package managers. And then in the paper, of course, Microsoft being Microsoft, they mention Azure upstream sources, which allows you to enforce the single source requirement that was mentioned in the beginning of the prevention section. It should also be noted that Microsoft reacted quite quickly in bolstering Azure upstream to mitigate or uh, afford a quick workaround to the tactics found by the researcher. So props to that. So definitely a, a shout out to, to Microsoft. And also, I believe Microsoft actually awarded him 40K, which is actually the highest price that they actually offer with their bug bounty. So kudos to Microsoft for actually recognizing the work, even though they did actually acknowledge while discussing with him that this is not actually a bug in their system, but rather a design flaw in package managers. They still created and assigned a CVE to it as 2021 that 
24105. So they were obviously being rather good sports about it and were clearly impressed. But the reason he got 40k is because he didn't actually find this by trying to hack nothing other than their own O365 environment. So the, the 40k, which is a maximum bounty, of course, was found because of the environment in which he pocked this for Microsoft, which is amazing, actually. I wonder if that was intentional. <laughs> but but in, but in terms of bug versus feature, I think this was this was a hard conversation. Let, let's say for JFrog Artifactory, let's leave that one alone. And, and also let's leave alone all of those commercial sort of proprietary products that take from open sources. In terms of the package managers for the major languages, this is kind of a weakness in an algorithm when used in a certain way. But it isn't really a software bug, right? It's more of a composite vulnerable position. So Microsoft isn't incorrect. Uh, I never thought I would say that, but yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> There's a lot of firsts in this year. We're going to be doing a lot of firsts, I'm sure. But actually, also on that type of point, I mean, this does look obviously like a bug which obviously is exploiting the order of execution, more or less. So obviously it prioritizes the public repositories over the local ones. And it kind of reminds me of a well-known elevation of privilege attack using hijacked Python module, in which someone obviously who gains access to a system and obtains a low-level user would be able to obviously identify a Python script that's being executed using elevated privileges. And if they know that this script obviously imports, for example, the requests library, and that library is located in, for example, slash the user slash local slash lib slash Python 2.7 slash dist packages. Then, obviously, through a misconfiguration, if you have access to the six other locations that Python takes precedence over when it looks for modules, and you can obviously create a Python script called request.py and add your own code to elevate your privileges, then the next time that actual script runs through, for example, a cron job, then it will actually run your script as root. So it just reminds me, obviously, of a order of execution or prioritization bug. But I'll tell you one type of person or group that's kicking themselves right now after they read about Alex's hack. And that has to be the hackers who are responsible for the solar winds hack. Because if a supply chain attack is this easy and they went to that much trouble to actually hack solar winds, stay undetected and then go into all these companies as stealthily as possible. And all they needed to do was create a couple of packages in PyPy to be able to get access to the same companies. They must be kicking themselves for not thinking about this. Shame on them. I know. <laughs> so now we're going to jump into our bite-sized chunks for the security news. All right, so I have only really one for this week, but I'm hoping the, the hilarity of this one will actually make up for my laziness, yeah? So this one is a story about a man who, you know, killed his wife. Been known to happen, happen, you know? However, the man is also a health-conscious individual. And you would think, okay, so those two things might, you know, not be in conflict. Be contradictory a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, because once you kill the wife, then you are all healthy for whatever comes next. However, however, this man actually got caught because he told law enforcement that he had gone to sleep around 10.30 at the day of the murder. However, according to data from his phone health app, he took 18 steps between 11.03 and 11.10 p.m. 
It took him 18 steps to kill his wife. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if he did a capoeira type thing. This reminds me of that time where the guy, maybe this this is an urban legend. So a guy who breaks into a house and gets caught because he left his Facebook profile open. Exactly. I mean, the, these kind of devices obviously are being used more and more. I do remember actually a, quite a famous case in the US in which a person was also accused of murder and he obviously denied it. But his actual IoT smart detector, which was linked to his jacuzzi system, actually detected a large amount of water on that night being actually used, like huge quantities of water, which obviously you would link to possibly washing away blood, was actually detected and it was used against him in the case. Be careful of the IoT devices you guys obviously have because they could rat on you as well. Also be mindful of, I think we talked about this last week, right? So is the the amount of telemetry worth it? All kidding aside, what do you want to know about your health? What do you actually need? What is actually just feeding the gamification of your life? It's definitely quite enjoyable to see a live feed of data in your wrist of whatever you're doing. But how much is that actually contributing, provided the knowledge you already have, how much you know yourself, and so on? Something to keep in mind, yeah? So whenever you're going to do something that you don't usually do, do you have a monitoring bracelet on? Keep that in mind. Exactly. (laughs) And in other uh, bite-sized chunk news that we had, Cyberpunk 2077 developer CD Projekt Red, who has already had some really bad publicity recently with players frustrated with the game's rampant bugs and poor gameplay on the legacy consoles, also added to their woes this week after a hacking group claimed to have stolen internal documents as well as source code from its most popular games, including Cyberpunk 2077 and The Witcher 3. And CD Projekt Red at the time said it would not pay the ransom. But now there are reports that the data that was stolen and was being sold on a dark web marketplace and had a starting bid of around $1 million has apparently been sold. Apparently, they said that an outside party came in and made a satisfactory offer to them and requested that the auction be closed at the request of the buyer, which the threat group actually did. But bearing in mind that this is, of course, what the uh, malicious actors are actually claiming on the dark web, and they haven't provided any proof of the purchase. So it's still only going by their word. But if that's true, then that obviously is going to add to the woes of the Project Red team. And also this week, following on from the big hack that Bloomberg published back in 2018 about how China had implanted tiny microchips on motherboards from the US-based Supermicro to infiltrate dozens of companies, including Apple and Amazon, a story that at the time everyone implicated strongly denied and outside security experts were highly doubtful of. Well, this week Bloomberg actually came back with a fresh round of reporting, including several law enforcement types speaking on the record about the claims. But reports indicate that it still has not been enough to appease most of the skeptics. 
and a bite-sized chunk fitting into our privacy segment, Apple has apparently added a feature in iOS 14.5 that will send all your Safari browser traffic through their own proxy servers when you are actually using the Safari browser in safe browsing mode. And this is to help hide your IP address from Google and other companies, but they say it shouldn't affect your experience in practice or limit the effectiveness of protective features you actually have. So with all of that now being said, we hope that you guys have enjoyed the episode of the Shadow Six Cybersecurity Podcast. So from Jorge and I, we wish you guys a good day and a good week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, dude, are we recording for real? For reals, baby. For real. But for realsies. For realsies. So now I'm going to bring it, yeah? Oh, yeah, baby. I I want the A stuff, baby. The A stuff, the good stuff.